Well, in the Bible, the way we walk means more than just how we move our feet. It refers to how we live our lives. It's not about our gait, but about our lifestyle. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul tells us how to move through life as believers in Jesus. And tonight, in chapter 5, he continues with that theme. We're to walk in love, and walk in light, and walk in wisdom, and walk in submission to one another. Chapter 5 begins, therefore be imitators of God. If you adore God, if you worship God, if he's your hero, you'll want to be like him. You'll want to imitate him. Paul says, be imitators of God. And then he adds, as dear children. You know, kids are especially prone to mimic their heroes. When I was little, my dad was my hero. And I would sit in the bathroom and I would watch my dad brush his teeth. Now this was interesting because dad wore dentures. And so he'd pull out his plate and he'd take his toothbrush and he'd scrub his false teeth, you know, with his toothbrush. Mom used to say that she'd walk in on me and I'd be standing there at the bathroom counter with my imaginary dentures in my hand, brushing my dentures as well. I wanted to imitate my dad. Well, God wants us to mimic him. We're to walk as Jesus walked. And here's how. Verse 2. Walk in love. Walk in love. My psychology book in college defined the word love as an agitated state of psychological arousal. To me, that's a bit too technical. Imagine gazing into your honey's eyes and whispering, Baby, you agitate my psyche. Love is more than just a burning brain wave. It's more than just a feeling or an emotion or an impulse. The true definition of love, you have to look to its author. And on the cross, Jesus showed us what real love looked like. Verse 2. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God For a sweet-smelling aroma. According to Jesus, according to his example, genuine love consists of giving and offering and sacrifice. In other words, love is all about commitment. Amy Carmichael once wrote, You can give without loving, but you can never love without giving. Jesus laid down his rights, his security, his comfort. Jesus sacrificed it all to save you and me. You see, sacrifice chalks the plumb line of love. If you want to see what real love looks like, look to Jesus on the cross. And then verse 3 tells us, but fornication. I mean, these are the opposite of love. Fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness. Let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. And notice here, Paul clumps three evils together. Fornication, uncleanness, And covetousness. In other words, love is all about giving, whereas lust is all about getting and taking. Oh my. Two stray dogs in an alley, they like each other enough to have sex. But that's hardly love, is it? Real love respects. It looks out for the other person's highest good. Real love would never dishonor or dirty or defile the one that it loves. Love lays down what I want and lives for God's best. And Christians, you see, are called to walk in love. Reminds me of the two lovers. The woman, she asked the the man, she says, do you love me? And of course, the man replied, yes, honey, you know I love you. She asked again, well, would you die for me? To which he replied, sorry, mine is an undying devotion. But here's the moral of the story. Love that won't die is not real love at all. Love that won't give, love that won't die to one's self-centeredness and one's selfishness is not real love. Paul continues describing what love avoids. He says, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. You can tell a lot about a person by what makes them laugh. It's true. Neither crude humor, 
or borderline banter or sexual innuendo should fall from a Christian's lips. Our vocal cords should vibrate most often with praise and always with speech that glorifies God. Verse 5, For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. I mean, here are three people who won't go to heaven. I mean, all three are not capable of restraint. Often they're the very same guy. When it comes to sex and thoughts and money, this person is out of control. It's all about them. It's about their glands and their perspective and their wallet. They lack any moral principle, any guiding spiritual principle in their life. But it's not just a moral problem, it's a spiritual one. For notice Paul refers to this man as an idolater. You know, most of today's Americans would never bow before a statue or a trinket. But they worship sex or money or things or their own independence. And when you value something supremely at all costs, it becomes your idol. Reminds me of the young businessman who flipped his car over the guardrail, went down a steep embankment. The twisted metal actually severed off his left arm. When the hero units finally reached the man, the guy just kept whining, Oh, my BMW. Oh, my BMW. The paramedics were appalled that this guy was just so materialistic, all he could think about was his car. One of the EMTs, he finally, he just kind of walked right up to him and whispered to him. He says, buddy, you got a lot more to worry about than that silly car. Your arm was chopped off. The man suddenly gets this panicked look on his face and he starts crying, oh, my Rolex, oh, my Rolex. Well, here is an idolater, not in the traditional sense of the word, but he, he puts his own needs Sex and money and, and his own possessions above everything else in his life. He's made it an idol. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. I mean, some so-called Christians, they speak empty words. They profess what they don't possess. He's saying, don't be taken in by mere words. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And notice this. We didn't just walk in darkness. We were darkness. And now that we've come to Christ, we don't just walk in the light. We are the light. Something has changed deep inside the Christian. You know, when you become a Christian, you don't just change environments. You become truly a new person in Christ Jesus. The light of God's purity, the light of His presence, His brilliance, His beauty begins to shine from you and through you and in you. It reminds me of the cathedral that was lined with stained glass windows. In each of the windows was a mosaic of one of the saints, a little girl who attended the church. She was one day asked in Sunday school, her teacher asked her, what is a saint? She replied, well, a saint is a person through whom the light shines through. And that's a great definition. That's the definition Paul gives us here in verse 8. That we're light in Christ. And in Christ we're all saints, understand. And so, walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And here are three components of light. Three divine rays of light, goodness to others, and rightness before God and truth in all things. Verse 11, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Now during the winter, northern cities, they use salt to clear their roads of ice and snow. And so after a time, a mixture of exhaust and salt and snow just gets plastered onto the sides of the cars. All the cars end up look, looking this murky gray. But on the first semi-warm day of spring, some fellow will wash his car. And it'll restore its original color. And when everyone else on the block sees the one clean car, all of a sudden they realize how dirty their cars have become. 
And as Christians, this is what we've been called to do. We're the one clean car. Without putting on a white glove or without being condemning or judgmental, we expose the darkness in others by simply being a reflection of God's light. Verse 12, For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. I mean, doing a thing is shameful, but then talking about it is also shameful. We drive out the darkness not by studying the darkness, not by discussing the darkness, not by getting on the phone and talking about the darkness, not even by fighting the darkness. You cast out the darkness by just turning on the light. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. What a dark world needs most is for you and I to walk in the light of God's love. Therefore, he says, he being Isaiah, he quotes from Isaiah, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. You and I need to live our lives wide awake spiritually. Christian musician Keith Green used to sing, the world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can we be so dead when we've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave and we can't even get out of bed. A battle rages around us. We need to tune in to those issues that matter to God. The devil has lulled the world to sleep. It's the church that needs to wake up. He says, see then that you walk circumspectly. Not as fools, but as wise. Circumspectly means to walk gingerly or to be careful where you plant your feet. This is how we should walk. I learned to walk circumspectly when my kids were all toddlers. One night I heard a strange noise. And I went to check it out. And I was stumbling along through the dark, through the dark house. Zach had been playing with his little Legos that day. And they were still scattered across the floor. But dead... He forgot that little detail, and when I stepped on that Lego, boy, did it hurt. Have you ever stepped on one of those things? I mean, those things are hard and sharp. There's no give in a Lego. Do you know that? I hit the first one. I grabbed my foot. I was hopping around in the dark, and then I hit another and another. I, I had a, fallen into a landmine of Legos. By the time I finally got to the light switch... Man, my feet were aching. I learned to walk circumspectly that night. Hey, when the world is so dark, we need to be careful how we step, how we move through life. We need to use our feet sometimes as feelers. We need to take it one step at a time. We need to be careful how we walk. You see, Satan is notorious for throwing banana peels out across our path, isn't he? One false move, and it can produce years of pain. I recall after Jim Baker's famous fall, infamous fall in a fair. You remember Jim Baker? That uh, his bringing down of that whole uh, media ministry. I remember after his affair, he made a statement, and I've never forgotten it. He said, it's amazing how 15 minutes can ruin your life. What a warning. Walk worthy of our calling. We need to be careful. We need to be wise how we step. We need to walk wisely. And here's how. First, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Now, if you live to be 70 years old, and during those seven decades, you work five days a week, eight hours a day, you then sleep eight hours nightly, you spend an hour traveling back and forth to work each day, you spend maybe two hours eating during the course of the day, and perhaps an hour grooming. Put all that together, and it means that if you're 25 years old today and you live to be 70, you're only going to have about 11 and a half years left over of discretionary time for you to really accomplish those things you want to accomplish. 11 and a half years if you're 25. This means that if you're 35, you've got about nine years of free time left. If you're 45, you've got six and a half years of life left for living. If you're 55, i got four more years. 
If you're 65, you've only got 15 months of life outside of work. You need to get busy. I mean, time is running. And if you're over 70, man, you're living on borrowed time. Time is running out on all of us. If you want to walk wisely, you want to make sure that every second you have counts for the kingdom of God. You need to redeem the time. Don't waste a second. He says, therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And here is the will of the Lord. You've been wondering what the will of God is for your life? Here it is. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And that's God's will for you. At Pentecost, the disciples were filled with the Spirit. But you remember what the onlookers thought? They thought they were smashed. In fact, they thought it was sort of unusual. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning and you guys are drunk. That doesn't bode well for the disciples. I mean, they're probably thinking, well, if it was 12, we could have imagined that. You probably would have been drunk, but it's just 9 o'clock in the morning. There are ways that being filled with the Spirit does resemble being drunk. Spiritual intoxication occurs when the Spirit permeates our spiritual bloodstream. It's interesting what the Holy Spirit does. It does a lot like what alcohol might do. It suppresses natural inhibitions. The Holy Spirit does that. It impacts our thinking. It affects our disposition. It ultimately influences our behavior. The difference is that wine or alcohol causes dissipation, Paul says, which means disorientation. It clouds my perspective. It deadens my senses, whereas the Holy Spirit does just the opposite. The Holy Spirit brings me clarity and heightens my awareness of God and the truths of God. Distilled spirit spins me out of control, whereas the Holy Spirit helps me gain and maintain control of my life. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, not drunk with wine. The Holy Spirit does create a spiritual buzz, a holy high, an inexpressible joy. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, a person is prone to erupt in uninhibited worship. This is why Paul adds in verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be glad you don't follow me around during the day because I'm singing a lot of the day. Kathy has to hear me. But I'm singing. God has put a joy in my heart. He's put a song on my lips. I spend a lot of the day singing and making melody in my heart to the Lord. It's part of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Hey, if you never have, if you never have, let me encourage you to ask God to fill you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now, to walk worthy of our calling in Christ, we need to walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom, and we need to walk in submission to one another. When I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, my needs are met by God, and that allows me to focus on the other person. Now, most of you have already skipped ahead. You know what's coming. And thus, some of the wives are squirming a bit. Some of the husbands have suddenly perked up. In fact, some of the men in the crowd tonight, you haven't actually heard a word I've said so far. You've been waiting on verse 22. You you knew it was there. That's why you came tonight. and You've been chomping at the bit to get to verse 22. But notice first verse 21. Here's a revolutionary statement. Verse 21 comes before verse 22. Did you know that? It does here. Before Paul mentions a single word about wives submitting to their husbands... He first says we need to submit to one another. There needs to be a mutual humility and a mutual submitting of our lives to each other. In other words, we all can learn from one another. My wife has much to teach me. But once we've taken to heart verse 21, then verse 22 applies. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I'm reminded of the man who asked the librarian to help him find the book titled Man, Master of His Home. She told him to look it up in the fiction section. 
Indeed, Paul's instructions for husbands and wives won't win any awards today for political correctness. Today, very few marriages are ordered biblically. But here's a footnote. Today, very few marriages last. Before you toss out God's wisdom, you might just want to take a second look. Before we go further, let's realize what Paul is not saying. He's not suggesting that a wife has to act like some little harem honey and cater to her husband's every whim. Being the head of your house, guys, doesn't mean you can sit on the couch and act like the Sultan of Morocco and boss your wife around. That's not what Paul is saying. The Greek word that Paul translates as submit is hupotasso. It means to arrange under or to line up behind. Biblical submission doesn't mean that a wife can't have a life. But she arranges her life around her husband's. The man establishes the parameters and sets the pace. The wife then organizes her life accordingly. You could say that the husband sketches out the lines of the picture and then he hands the paints to his wife and lets her color in those lines. Both parties contribute equally to the painting, but they play different roles. Their equality is an ordered equality. Now, if someone says, you're running around like a chicken with his head cut off, that's not a compliment, is it? Of course it's not. For God knows that all bodies need a head. And guess what? A body needs not two heads, not three heads, not no heads, but a body works best if it has one head. Has that ever dawned on you? One head. That's why God establishes a single head over each family. The man's role is to provide leadership. The woman lends support. Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, she once commented, the best advice I can give to unmarried girls is to marry someone you don't mind adjusting to. God tailors the wife to fit the husband, not the husband to fit the wife. Paul says, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now notice the roles in marriage aren't arbitrarily assigned. In marriage, God is painting a picture of realities that go far beyond just the arrangement of a man and a woman. The reason your marriage is such a big deal is that God has given it universal, eternal, mystical, spiritual meaning that transcends you and your spouse. In other words, marriage is a spiritual snapshot. God has chosen to illustrate Christ's relationship with His church through your relationship with your spouse. This is heavy. This is what makes marriage sacred. Kathy and I are co-stars in a heavenly production. And we play our parts every single day. I'm the leading man. She's the leading lady. And together we're portraying to our friends and to our family and to our church the greatest love story ever told The gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why it's important that husbands and wives are faithful to play their part. And in my opinion, the most difficult role in the drama belongs to the husband. Now ladies, you think it's tough to submit. And I understand your thinking. But just look at what's required of the husband. Verse 25. Husbands... Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Wow. Now that's a big task. That's a big responsibility. A wife should love her husband enough to live for him, but a husband should love his wife enough to die for her. And not just once, in some kind of gallant act, But in a million daily ways, we husbands are called on to die just a little bit, to lay down our rights in order to protect and nurture and minister to our wives. To love a wife Jesus style 
It takes a sacrificing love. It also requires a sanitizing love. Paul goes on. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Guys, are you loving your wife in a way that leads her toward greater purity and holiness and devotion to Christ? Is your love a sanctifying as well as a sacrificing love? Do we encourage our wives to embrace God's forgiveness or do we remind them of their past mistakes? Do we encourage her to see herself in Christ or do we keep a record of her faults and failures? Do we treat her with God's grace or do we grade her on her performance? Do we show her mercy or do we give her only what we think she deserves? In other words, do I love my wife the way Jesus loves me? We should. And here's the Lord's goal for his church. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Notice too, the love of Christ is a sharing love. Jesus will one day take us to heaven and show us off to the Father. We'll share in his glory. And here's my question to the husbands tonight. Does your wife share in your glory? If you expect your wife to arrange her life around yours, then when you succeed, you better share the spoils of your success with your wife. Always remember, behind every successful man, there's two people. There's a faithful wife, and and there's a surprise mother-in-law. Now, if I read verse 27 correctly, Jesus brags on his bride. Did you know he loves us that much? He can't wait to get us to heaven to show us off to the Father. Did you know that? And I got to ask the husbands, what about you? Do you brag on your wife? Do you praise her publicly or do you pick at her? Do you carry her picture with you? Are you in the habit of building her up? Mr. and Mrs. Winston Churchill were at a dinner party when someone asked Sir Churchill, if you could be anybody else in the world other than who you are, who would you be? The prime minister, he turned, he reached over for his wife's hand and he he said these words. He says, if I could not be who I am, I most would like to be Lady Churchill's second husband. I bet he won some points that night. Verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. The love of Jesus is a sacrificing love and a sanitizing love and a sharing love. And it's also a stimulating love. A man nourishes his own body. We all do. And if I love my wife like Jesus loves me, I'm going to love her in a way that helps her grow as a person as a Christian, to help nourish and encourage and stimulate her. Here's a great question every husband should ask himself. Has my wife gotten prettier or plainer since she married me? Has she flourished or has she floundered? The answer reveals how you've treated her. I mean, I can't believe it when guys come up to me after they've been married for 10 years. I don't love my wife anymore. Well, why don't you? She's been under your care. Why hasn't she become more lovable and more adorable? How could, why haven't you invested in her and nurtured her and helped her grow and flourish and flower? What have you been doing? It's been said, treat a wife like a thoroughbred and she'll never be a nag. That's good advice. A good marriage will enrich a wife, not smother or stifle her. This is why I'm saying, and ladies, I just got to say, the husband's job, it's the tougher job. The husband's got the bigger job. Ladies, all you've got to do is submit. You don't even have to love us. Just submit to us. Just go ahead and let it play out, see what happens. You don't build him up. That might help. Let him lead. But that's really all you've got to do is let him lead. A husband, in turn, he needs to love his wife with a sacrificing and sanitizing, and sharing, and stimulating love. 
Verse 31 quotes Genesis chapter 2, and it reiterates God's plan and purpose for marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And verse 33 tells us what men and women need most. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Write this down. Women need love and men need respect. This is why husbands should love their wives and wives should respect their husbands. When we do that, we're playing into each other's needs. You see, this is how men and women relate best. It has a snowball effect. The more a husband shows his wife this kind of love, the more she will respect him, which will prompt more love, which will gain more respect. And wow, before long, you got this ball rolling in the right direction, man. But the snowball, snowball can roll in reverse as well. If a husband feels disrespected, he'll withdraw. You know, he won't do those things that will show his love for his wife. And, and then when the wife doesn't feel loved, she'll pull away further and he'll feel more disrespect. And then, of course, now the beat goes on in the wrong direction. This is why husbands need to love their wives and wives need to respect their husbands. And what about parents and kids? Well, chapter 6 addresses this subject. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. But note the qualification, in the Lord. The Lord would never expect a wife or a child to submit to an ungodly or an immoral demand. It's been said, godly submission never requires what God forbids or forbids what God requires. But when good parents desire God's best for their child, those children need to obey and they need to respect their parents. Verse 2, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. You'll live longer and you'll live better if you listen to your parents' wisdom. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. The Greek word translated training means discipline. Admonition means encouragement. We need to raise our children in the training and admonition of the Lord. We need to discipline properly, but then we need to encourage continually. Martin Luther used to say, a parent needs both a rod and an apple to raise kids. A rod to spank the kid when he rebels... And an apple to reward him when he shows a godly initiative. <laughs> hey, mate, raising children requires a healthy balance of both, doesn't it? Kids need both a rod of correction and they need a nod of approval. As Christians, we need to live out our high calling at home. And what about the workplace? How do you walk worthy of your calling in Christ in the workplace? Well, verse 5 tells us, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Now, there are probably very few bond servants or slaves here tonight. You may think that your boss works you like a slave, but I doubt if you really are. But what Paul says to slaves also applies to modern-day employees. And he tells us to obey our boss. In fact, he tells us that we should tackle the assignments we're giving as if Jesus himself had given them to us. We should work with a desire to serve, with sincerity, from the heart, not just for a paycheck. Verse 6 says that we're to work not with eye service as men pleasers. And I'm sure you've seen this firsthand. I mean, the boss walks into the office and suddenly everybody's as busy as a beaver. Then the boss exits and all of a sudden the room's full of slackers again. You've seen this work out right in front of your eyes. You see, that's with eye service as men pleasers. Once a guy was asked, are you looking for work? 
He answered, not really, but I would like a job. That's the problem. We need to do our work as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. You see, for me, the real measure of spiritual maturity is to have the ability to do whatever I'm doing to the glory of God. Whether it's turning a wrench, or pushing a vacuum, or programming a computer, or servicing a customer, can I do it as unto the Lord? To me, this is the mark of spiritual maturity. We all should be able to turn our work into worship. When you do it unto the Lord, it's the equivalent of singing a praise. It's the equivalent of glorifying the Lord. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether, it is, whether he is a slave or free. In other words, the eternal paycheck you receive, it's not going to be signed by your employer. It's going to be signed by God. So ultimately, we're all working for the Lord anyway. And then verse 9 has instruction for bosses. And you masters, you boss, do the same things to them, giving up threatening knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. In other words, the boss should always remember that he or she has a boss. That's right. He should treat his workers fairly and compassionately and consistently. At first, we don't really recognize the revolutionary impact of Paul's instructions here for marriage and for parenting and for labor. All ancient cultures taught wives should submit to their husbands. All ancient societies stressed that children should obey their parents. All cultures stressed that bond servants should work hard for their masters. That was nothing new. But Christianity was the first and the only religion to introduce the principle of reciprocal responsibility. That husbands also had an obligation to love their wives. And that fathers shouldn't provoke their children. And that bosses shouldn't bully their workers. This was the Christian ethic. Suddenly Christianity transformed both home and work. It altered every dimension of life. We can't overestimate its revolutionary impact. Which brings us to the third section of the book. We've learned now that we're seated in Christ. We've learned that we need to walk worthy of our calling. And now we learn that we need to stand against the wiles of the devil. As we said before, a Christian should learn to sit, then walk, then stand. Verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand Against the wiles of the devil. Now whenever it comes to dealing with the devil, human beings are prone to two mistakes. Some folks underestimate the devil. We think he's just this little imp in red leotards, horns, tail, a little pitchfork. I think perhaps the devil's greatest feat is in making so many people think he doesn't exist. Too many people don't take him seriously. And yet, on the other hand, there are people who overestimate him. Satan is not God's equal. Understand that. He is infinitely inferior. He is a created being gone sour. He's an angel booted out of the choir because of a runaway ego. God is far greater than Satan. Remember 1 John 4, verse 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Always remember, Satan is a defeated foe. Jesus' victory over sin and death stripped the devil of his authority. 1 John 5 verse 18 tells us, We know that whoever is born of God, the wicked one does not touch him or literally cannot attach himself to him. The only time the devil can hassle a Christian is when that Christian lets him. That's the only time. Satan wields his power only because he's tolerated. 
He's still robbing banks. He's still ripping off Christians. He's still stealing away our blessings in Christ. But he's doing it with a sinister sounding bluff. He's doing it with a harmless pop gun. We need to rise up as James chapter 4 verse 7 tells us. Resist the devil and what will happen? He'll flee from you. If you resist him, it'll force him to flee. On our own, we are no match for the evil one. But Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And let's be strong. Here's the irony. No one knows Satan's limitations better than he does. And that's why seldom does Satan mount a full frontal assault. He knows that if he does, we'll run straight to Jesus. And that'll mean curtains for him. Thus, Satan prefers a bag of tricks. Paul calls them the wiles of the devil. Doubt and fear and compromise and jealousy and condemnation and discouragement and dissension. You see, Satan will do all he can to divert your attention from who you are and what you have in Christ Jesus. He'll trip you up. He'll slip in behind you. The devil's deceptions are intended to undermine your faith and rob you of your blessings in Christ. And that's why we need protection. We need some armor. We need some weapons. And we got them. Paul talks about them in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Never forget, this is all a spiritual battle. It's not a political battle. It's not a military battle. It's a spiritual battle. And you don't fight a spiritual battle with fleshly or carnal weapons. In the same way, you wouldn't fight a modern-day war with swords and spears. And in the same way, you don't fight a spiritual war with fleshly techniques. We need spiritual weaponry. That's what we need. And God has given us spiritual armor and firepower. Paul tells us in verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. In Christ, we have five pieces of armor and we have a twofold arsenal. Five pieces of armor and two weapons. Paul begins with the armor. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Now understand, while Paul was writing this letter to the Ephesians, One hand held a pen, and the other hand was chained to a Roman soldier. And he had plenty of time to inspect that Roman soldier's armor. In fact, Paul is going to use the gear issued by the Roman legion as analogous to our spiritual armor. And the first item that he mentions is the belt of truth. You see, the ancients believed that the loins, the abdominal area, was the seat of the emotions. Even today, we talk about gut feelings. That's where it comes from. We feel like it comes from down in our our gut. And Satan, he tinkers with our emotions. This is a big strategy he has. If he can cause you to walk by feeling rather than by faith, he can sink your ship. Thus, Paul tells us to, first of all, strap on the belt of truth. I mean, just because you wake up one day and you don't feel like a Christian, that doesn't mean you aren't one. Bind your faith to God's immutable word, not your fickle feelings. Don't let your devotion be determined by emotion. And then he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. The ancients also, they viewed the heart as the seat of the desires. And for Paul, the heart needs to be protected. We need to nurture and cultivate godly desires. I hope you're doing this. Conversely, Satan is quick to inflame old desires. Be on guard against him. Remember, you're not the same person you used to be. Your deepest desires have changed. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. 
And then verse 15, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You know, the Roman soldier, they wore a unique kind of sandals. They had these long spikes that allowed them to stand firm, even in rocky terrain. And Paul is warning us here that there are times when you'll get blindsided. When Satan will sneak up behind you and knock you off balance. A co-worker at work will attack your faith with questions you can't answer. Or you'll become confused and you'll be tempted to doubt the Lord. And Paul is saying that in those moments, when we get knocked off balance, when we're caused to doubt, or we have a question we can't answer, in those moments, we need to rely on God's peace. We need to dig in with the sandals of peace. In other words, when your head gets confused, remember the peace in your heart. Don't let them steal that peace. No one can deny the presence of God that you sense. No one can deny the miracle of God that you are. Let God's peace steady your faith until you can seek out those answers to those questions. Don't get knocked off balance. And then verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. The Roman shield was big enough to protect the soldier from a shower of flaming arrows. He'd just crawl under his shield and he would wait until the attack was over. There are times when Satan stops fighting fair. Instead of single thrusts, he lobs a folly of different evils all at once. And it's in those moments that you just need to squat down under your faith and trust the Lord no matter what. Rest in your faith until the attack has passed. It's also interesting that these shields that the Romans carried, they were gangable. In other words, they could interlock so that a group of soldiers could join shields and create sort of a blanket of protection. And likewise, did you know our faith is gangable? Our faith is stronger when we lock together with other shields. Hope you know that. That's what church is all about. And then take the helmet of salvation. This fallen world, it spews negativity and cynicism. And it sours our outlook if we let it. That's why we need some mind protection. I mean, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. We need a helmet. We need some mind protection. We need to safeguard our thoughts and our vision with God's good news. You know, a football player would never go out into the game without a helmet. You should never go out into the spiritual battle without guarding your thoughts. Paul will tell the Colossians, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. In other words, wear a helmet. Before we leave our armor, notice the one part of the body that's not covered. It's one part of the body that's not covered. Have you noticed? It's the back. God provides nothing for your back. And do you know why? Because he never wants you to retreat. He says, stand against the devil. And when you've done all, just stand. Don't run from him. Stand up to him. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. The French Foreign Legion, they have a tremendous motto. If I falter, push me on. If I stumble, pick me up. If I retreat, shoot me. God has no armor for the back. And we're also given some weapons, some firepower. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Notice this. Now, verses 17 and 18 are going to point out two offensive weapons. We've got the defensive armor, but there's two offensive weapons. There's the blade, and there's the bomb. There is the Bible, and there's prayer. Paul first mentions the Bible. It's powerful. It is the sword of the Spirit. Under the direction of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God is able to slice right to the heart of the matter. It can discern the lies of Satan. It can penetrate. It can get at the heart of the issue. I love 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 10. We're told of one of David's mighty men. His name was Eleazar. He fought against the Philistines and we're told this. Until his hand was weary and it stuck to the sword. 
Notice he fought so tenaciously that his hand literally froze to the handle. He couldn't put down his sword. And this should be our attitude toward the word of God. We need to have a vice grip on this book. A vice grip is needed for victory. In verse 18, describes the other weapon. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Prayer is the heavy artillery. With it you can stand behind enemy lines and you can bomb the enemy's strongholds. I mean, from your bedside, you can blast Satan's strongholds all over the planet. You can blast away at excuses and break down defenses before you ever go in personally to share the gospel. Prayer is a powerful weapon. Paul encourages the Ephesians to pray. And while they're at it, Paul asks, And would you pray for me? That utterance may be given to me? That I may, be op- that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Remember, Paul is in a rat-infested Roman prison. But he's not whining about it. He sees his circumstances as opportunities. If God has him in this prison, it must be to share his faith with someone who needs to hear. And so he asks the Ephesians to pray, not for his bail money, but for boldness to be a witness. Paul is winding down in verse 21. But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Tychicus, he was Paul's postman. He delivered this letter to the Ephesians and he gave the church an update on Paul's condition. And the apostle closes with the benediction. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you all, those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen.